Obviously, you've come to the Leading Saints podcast because you love podcasts and you love consuming content in this manner, uh, listening to a pre-recorded conversation or interview or presentation. And we get a lot of good stuff here, but nothing compares to an in-person retreat experience. This is one thing I've learned in the last few years that we are infusing into our Leading Saints content is the need for in-person experiences, also known as retreats. So Leading Saints has started putting on retreats, both for men, women. We're going to play around with couples retreats and we'll try it all. But retreats are a transformational experience. And I implore you to go check out leadingsaints.org slash gathering, where we list all of the upcoming retreats. Some are open to register. Others you can get on a waiting list. But we would love to have you at the next in-person retreat. Now, if you can't afford it, if there may be, if you price out of these opportunities. Don't worry. We have very generous donors willing to put up money for scholarships. So either go there, check it out, register or apply for a scholarship. And we'd love to have you the next Gathering Saints retreat put on by Leading Saints. So go to leadingsaints.org slash gathering to check out the upcoming Gathering Saints retreats. Hey, if you're a newbie to Leading Saints, it's important that you know, what is this Leading Saints thing? Well, Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And the way we do that is through content creation. So we have this phenomenal podcast, we have a newsletter, we have virtual conferences, so much more. Articles on our website, I mean, I could go on and on, right? (laughs) And we encourage you to uh, jump in, check out Leading Saints, uh, go to the search bar at leadingsaints.org and type in some topics and see what pops up. We're just glad you're here to join us. Today, I'm with Richard Nash. Richard, welcome. Thank you. Happy now, to you, be here. You are the author of, get it right here, The Three Keys to help you give a better talk. I mean, what are you saying, Richard? We don't we don't know how to give talks around here. What's going on? Look around next time you give a talk. Oh. And either you'll see a lot of people bowing their heads in quiet contemplation <laughs> or some of them may be sleeping. Right? So, yeah. yeah <laughs> I, I think it. all of us can stand to improve some way. I agree. I agree. So what landed you in the in front of your computer to start typing up this manuscript? I learned David O. McKay's three keys to give a talk when I was on a mission. I was 19. I was brand new in the mission field. And somebody in a meeting shared these principles. And I thought they are obviously true and applicable. And I wrote them in the notes section of my Bible. You Mm. know, have an objective, use examples, emphasize application. And, you know, I was young. A year later, I'm in the mission office where I'm giving talks in every zone conference. And in our zone conferences, we had 10 zones. I gave the same talk 10 different times every month for seven months. And after those 70 talks, I saw how effective President McKay's speaking principles are. And when I came home, you know, I reported my mission. I was pretty comfortable giving talks. And I stood up in that first sacrament meeting when I was home. And I had an objective. I used examples. Some of the examples were funny. Mm-hmm. I emphasized application. <laughs> and in the audience, I didn't realize it at the time, was the woman I later married. Oh, you wooed her with your words, Richard. Well, <laughs> yes and no. There was a complication because she was there with her boyfriend. Oh, boy. And she told me later 
she turned to her boyfriend after my talk and she said, that's my idea of what a return missionary is like. Wow. And so two years later, she and I start to date. The, the boyfriend had disappeared. And I had a little bit of a head start. And then, you know, I went to college. I studied journalism and communication. And my first job out of college was for a political leader, fairly prominent. And among other things, I wrote some speeches for him and some jokes. He wow. never used the jokes. <laughs> and I moved from politics into a corporate life where I wrote speeches for a lot of our executives. Wow. And the whole time I used these principles, have an objective, use examples, emphasize application in all kinds of speeches, even before PowerPoint. And, and then in the church, I served in various callings. And this simple, effective way to talk is so good. After a while, I thought more people need to know this. Yeah. You know, it really is a remarkable part of our uh, faith tradition is these opportunities we have as, as lay members in a congregation, either we're called to a specific calling like the high council or in a bishopric where we are asked to speak more often, or, you know, just our turn comes around to speak in sacrament meeting. And I think we've been doing it. It's just been so much part of our the fabric of our, our community that we don't realize that most other churches, they go to church and listen to the pastor speak or the, the priest, right? They have preachers who are professionally trained. Yeah, yeah. And some of them are fantastic and, you know, that's great. But, you know, we just have a different model here. And so this is great that you're creating these resources. And this. speaking is terrifying for people. I mean, yeah. I've spoken a lot and I am nervous be before every talk. And most of us kind of do it the way we've always done it. Yeah. And, you know, we get an assignment. We're supposed to, you know, talk on David Bednar's latest talk. And so we stand up and kind of paraphrase what he said, and, and then we share our interpretation. And, and a lot of times we have the sense, and maybe the members of the congregation have the sense, uh, Elder Bednar said it better than you're saying it. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't think about a better way unless we find better principles to use. Yeah. Love so it. that's why yeah. I wrote the book. That's cool. And, you know, in the context of leadership, which we always try and stay in the world of leadership as we, you know, on Leading Saints. Sure. I mean, public speaking is almost synonymous with leadership. I mean, to stand in front of a group of people that you quote unquote lead and, you know, stir up motivation, stir their hearts and minds and inspire them to take action or be different or, you know, invest in their mission of the organization. And so I think having some skill sets of speaking is just will serve you for your whole life, especially if you're serving in leadership. Oh, bingo. Bingo. Yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. You set the vision and you set the culture by what you say. Yeah. So these three principles, like you said, they came from President David O. McKay. And if I, I've read several, well, several, a couple of his biographies and whatnot, and he was an educator. I mean, that was his career, wasn't it? Oh, yes. And a powerful educator. The School of Education at BYU is named in his honor. The, gosh, I think the education building at Weber State University is named after him. He was the first general Sunday school president of the church when he was a very young man, called to be an apostle when he was very young. And he was, you know, handsome and charismatic and funny, a great storyteller. He's credited with kind of leading the church out of a Utah-based or Mountain West States-based institution into a worldwide institution. I believe it was Cecil B. DeMille said, he looks like a prophet yeah. you know, with, with his white hair and his white suits. You know, he had charisma. 
Yeah, he and did. he was a powerful speaker. In fact, there's an academic book called The Rhetoric of David O. McKay. Oh, really? And oh. people have studied the way he spoke. So he knew what he was talking about. Yeah. Anything else in regards to David O. McKay? Because this comes from, was it the early 1900s that he referenced these principles? I mean, it's not, or when was it? 1905. He gave a series of talks. It, it was a general Sunday school conference and buried in these talks, the, the principles are almost impossible to find on the internet. He said, have an objective, use examples, emphasize application. And then he illustrated each point. And if you have good eyes and a lot of patience, you can find them online in the old, gosh, what, what was it? The instructor or the improvement era? Yeah. One know, of those early magazines, right? Yeah. 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 The nice. magazines that are even older than I am. So this wasn't a general conference. It was a conference related to Sunday school? A general Sunday school conference where he taught our teachers how to speak. Wow. Interesting. So, and was he an apostle at, at that time or was... No. Okay. No. So he was the, but he was the general Sunday school president, you know, in whatever terms they used then. As a very young man. Yeah. Because yes. he was a young apostle too, I think in his mid thirties or something, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, what's the jumping off point? Should we go through these principles or is there any other foundation we need to lay before we uh, start unpacking the principles? Let's jump into the principles. Okay. So have um, an objective, number one, right? Number one, your objective is the message you want your listeners to take away from your talk. You can ask yourself, when the people who are here at church go home, what do I want them to say when they talk about what I talked about? Normally in our family, as our kids were growing up, we always said, you know, what was your lesson on? And, you know, sometimes the kids had an idea and sometimes they didn't. Normally, your objective ought to be crystallized into one sentence. Sometimes in sacrament meeting, because our topics are assigned to us by the bishopric, our topics are assigned to us. But one of the points I make in my book is, as you study and pray, often the Lord will lead you to an objective you personally are meant to share. That's why you've been called to speak in church. And once you figure out what that objective is, your, or once you figure out what your errand from the Lord is, then you'll sense the Lord's help along the way. An example, not, not from a talk, but from a Sunday school lesson. I was teaching gospel doctrine 10 or 15 years ago, and it was a church history year, and the lesson was on the building of the Kirtland Temple. And, you know, it's easy in a lesson like that to say, okay, today's lesson is on the Kirtland Temple. Who knows how the temple was built? And automatically, people avoid eye contact with you. Nobody knows. And even worse, one or two people will know and they'll say, well, it was built, you know, and they didn't have enough, you know, building materials and it, it was a real sacrifice and they broke their plates, you know, to make the mortar shine, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the problem is you're not teaching gospel doctrine, you're teaching gospel history. And years ago, when, when I was looking at the manual, thinking, today's lesson is on the Kirtland Temple, I realized the saints in Kirtland at that time had never seen a temple. Prophet Joseph had never seen a temple. He didn't know what it looked like. He'd never even seen a picture of one. And so it occurred to me, today's lesson is about developing the faith to do the things you may not know how to do. And my first question was, has anyone received a calling to do something you didn't know how to do? And, you know, we're not talking about temple construction. We're talking about faith. And 
I'll tell you, you know, to be completely honest, people still avoided eye contact, but people have been asked to do something they don't know how to do. And some hands started to go up. And so we're talking about faith and everybody has a story about faith. And all of a sudden we're talking about an objective that has meaning in people's day-to-day lives. My feeling is the more specific your objective is, the more effective your talk will be. Yeah, absolutely. And I often use the, like to, as, as I'm, you know, coaching individuals who are putting maybe a, a talk together or a lesson, I'll often say, imagine there is a reporter at the back of the room at the end of the, the meeting or the lesson, they're going to ask each person that walks out, what was that lesson about? Right. And if they can articulate one phrase that you have, you know, helped them remember, then there's some work to do. So they may say, oh, it was about, it's about tithing or it was about faith or I'm recording this in March of 2023. And, and I know on Sunday we had Sunday school and, you know, it was about Jesus and calming the seas, right? Uh, was there a clear message? You know, not, not that I remember, maybe that's my fault. I don't know. But, you know, it's easy to sort of have these general ideas of what being taught. But if you can really, you know, have that objective clear written out that they, that you're going to deliver, it really transforms how the talk is given. Bingo, you state your objective right up front, you crystallize it into a brief summary, and then then you repeat it. I've always said repetition builds retention, except with teenagers. You look at the way the leaders of the church speak. I did, you know, as I'm working on my book, now that it's come out, I looked at how the speakers in last October's conference began their talks. And of 35 talks, 27 of them began in the first sentence, either with a story or with a statement of the speaker's objective. Elder Todd Christofferson said, quote, I'd like to speak to what I call the doctrine of belonging in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's an objective. People know what you're talking about. Elder Gong, friends, dear brothers and sisters, do you remember believing or wanting to believe in happily ever after? With a first sentence like that, people know what you're going to talk about. Your objective is very clear. Love it. Awesome. Anything else about having an objective that we need to cover? I'll give you another example if, if okay. you want to quote yeah, this. Yeah, love it. A year or two, I was asked to speak, and my topic was very generally was on prayer. And I pondered and prayed, what about prayer I should say? And then I thought of a story I could tell. And so I said, my first sentence My purpose today is to share four lessons I've learned about prayer, and I'll introduce them by telling you about the worst prayer in the history of the world, which I offered when I was 14 years old. I'm leaning in, Richard. This is, I'm, I'm intrigued. This is a case study of how not to pray. And, you know, so I said that sentence, here's my miserable prayer. And, you know, I could tell people were paying attention. A woman in the ward came up to my wife afterward, and she said, even my teenagers were listening. <laughs> and if that's not a miracle, yeah, I don't know right. what is. <laughs> so, so I told the story, introduced the four lessons, felt the spirit as I talked. You know, when we stand up, our goal is to change people's lives, to deepen their conversion to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we do that effectively, that's what happens. Love it. Really good. Well, should we move on to using examples? Okay. People love stories. The best thing you can do once you've stated your objective is to share examples that illustrate what you're talking about. I've always heard the two most powerful words in language are, for example. Mm. Stories are the way we talk when we're talking with our friends. 
We come home from work. How was your day today? We tell stories. We don't preach. You know, we, oh, you won't believe what happened to me. I had a meeting this afternoon. And, you know, I wasn't quite prepared. And the CEO came in and sat down and, you know, blah, we tell stories. And, and you know, my wife says, wow, what did you do? And, you know, that's the way we talk. And so when we tell stories rather than preach, you know, I could come home and tell Laurie, Laurie, the lesson I learned today is you should always be prepared for every meeting you have. <laughs> and she'll say, oh, man, why are you telling me this? When you tell stories, they're credible. There's something you did rather than something you pontificated about. They're interesting. They're relevant. They're memorable. We remember stories. There's a lot of research that shows we remember stories more than anything else we talk about. They're easy to tell, again, because they're conversational, and they're a profound way to share your personality because only you can tell experiences that happen to you. Yeah. I mean, the best example that comes to my mind of the master storyteller, you know, in general conference and Anybody could be, you know, any, you know, faithful Latter-day Saint could be woken up in the middle of the night and say, tell me a, a President Monson story or just reference one, right? <laughs> like there are so many President Monson stories, whether it's the widows of the ward, or I remember one, you know, him and, and fishermen and, and I, I'd have to look it up, but it, it's sticking there, right? Like, I mean, uh, just his travels and whatnot, like stories are so memorable and they're, we're built, our brains are wired to just absorb stories. That's exactly right. There have been neurological studies that show we do, one researcher said, we do a mind meld when people tell stories. Yeah. We and, connect on a neurological level. Yeah. it's And that's a big thing is it's connection, right? My soul connects with your soul through Bingo. story, right? Yes. I yes. love how you bring up uh, preaching in this context because, you know, obviously I think, you know, a lay member, you know, just a a member of the wards asked to speak in sacrament. They don't feel necessarily, they, they don't want to be preachy, you know? And so, you know, of course they want to tell stories, but sometimes as leaders, we kind of feel like, actually, I think I'm, I'm supposed to like sort of call them to repentance and whatnot. And so it's easy to sort of default to this preachy tone at times thinking, you know, I'm going to really give it to them and going to tell them where they correct their ways and whatnot. And of course, maybe the spirit leads you there, but there's something about if you can put it into a, a narrative, a story, whether especially a personal story of this is how this principle was manifest in my life. And this is how it changed me. Naturally, people with the help of the spirit are going to start thinking, huh, yeah, you know what? I could probably change in that area. But the minute you preach at them, they almost get their, put the guard up like, hey, man, man, mind your own business here, right? So the power of story and narrative and anecdotes can really do a lot to inspire somebody to change. Bingo. And Kurt, you hit the nail on the head. The key word there is connect. Yeah. Because we connect with stories. I remember teaching the priest quorum years and years ago. And I talked about when I was at, you know, all the kids in the ward went to Highland High. And I said, you know, when I was at Highland, this is what happened. And you had to wear this kind of pants and these kind of shoes and blah, blah, blah. One of the kids who, you know, was not a real active participant in the quorum, his eyes went wide and, and he said, you went to high school? <laughs> And it was like, well, yeah. And he said, you were a kid? <laughs> I wasn't always old and bald. You know, and, yeah. and, and it was like, oh, this guy is like me. Yeah. Connection, right? Yeah. Bingo. Love it. Yeah. Any other advice with uh, using examples and how we do that? Oh, gosh. 
I've got a story. I spoke to a Fifth Sunday group of young men and young women recently, and my theme was, you get good at what you practice. And I introduced the theme, and then, you know, my examples were, point number one, this will embarrass me, but most of my stories embarrass me, talking with girls, which I had zero practice at when I was a kid. My first date, I'm going on a date, you know, with Ruth, who I was lined up with. You know, we had nothing in common. I grew up with only brothers. Girls terrified me. So, Ruth, what classes do you have? Well, it's summer. I don't have any classes. Oh, what classes do your brothers have? You know, well, I don't have any brothers and (laughs) it's summer. You know, nobody's in school. And I think (laughs) I am crashing and burning. You know, I got to get out of here. And so... I started to practice. I remember going into English and sitting behind a, you know, a blonde girl and I practiced a whole speech and my speech was, hi. And she turned around and said, hi. And she said, what's your name? And at that point I blanked out and said, I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I got some practice and pretty soon I could talk to girls. And, and so there's example one. And, you know, yeah. we've got these 30 or 40 kids, you know, they're listening and they're listening to me. Yeah. And I can tell we are connecting because I'm telling stories. And then we segue from there into you get good at what you practice. You practice filling your callings. You practice living the law of chastity. When you practice that when you're young, you're good at it when you're old. And, you know, I've repeated that. You get good at what you practice. And by the time I got done, I hope the kids will remember it. Yeah. That's, that's yeah, I why so. I went there. You know, the thing about like examples, especially stories, they not only make a talk more engaging, more memorable, but they can also make the preparation of a talk quite a bit easier. Can, and let me break this down a little bit. And sometimes, you know, you talk about nervousness and maybe we'll talk about that more in, in a minute, but you know, you're asked to give this, you know, 15 minute talk in sacrament meeting. And, and when you're told that is like 15 minutes, that's eternity, right? Like there's this pressure. So what we do, or even, you know, you know, leading a discussion or teaching in, in Sunday school, you have, you know, what, 50 minutes or something. And it's sort of like, man, that's eternity. So we, so you go to work and you start researching and compiling notes. And before you know, it doesn't take long to have four hours worth of content, right? And then you're, you know, we've all experienced that sacrament talk that just goes over and you're thinking, have you not glanced at the clock? You know, the other speakers <laughs> sweating, thinking I don't have any time, right? And so oftentimes I'll give people the advice of saying like, you know, consider your topic and, and you know, this each to each their own, but I, maybe this is a little bit hyperbole, but I say 80% of your talk should be your story, a remarkable story. So you take that topic, you think on it and scour your life for what story where this principle is manifested and go tell the story for 80% of it. And then, you know, plug in the principles, the doctrine and testify and boom, you got people will love that. I mean, and even in our tradition, we love a good conversion story. And I remember oh. being a bishop and uh, there's a few times where the speakers didn't show up. The stake speakers left me high and dry. And the best thing, the best default to do that, I would think through in my mind, who's been baptized in the last year or two, or maybe sometime who's a convert, you know, invite them up and say, just tell us your story. Tell us your conversion story. And the whole room leans in and just listens, you know? So anyways, this is the power of story, right? Bingo. Yes. If there's a sequel to the book, I'm going to list you as the co-author. You you know, 
you say 80% of your talk ought to be stories. What I've said, I've described my book before, and I've said, you know, in, in the Dieter Ruchdorf model, 70% yeah. of it is airplane and 30% is preaching. That's right. So, That's right. Love yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and when you tell the story, I mean, people are engaged with you, then you, you share your message at the end, there's resonance to it. Mm-hmm. And they understand how it works. I mean, that segues into principle three from David O. McKay, which is emphasize application. And what you're doing is you're likening your life to theirs. Yeah. Yeah. And before we move on to principle three, let me ask you, or bring up this topic about story, because, and, and I want to get into this a little bit more in depth, maybe later on, but oftentimes this isn't the way I, I don't think this is the best way as far as to you know, pick sacrament meeting topics, but it's a, a tradition throughout the church from ward to ward that people will be signed a conference talk to focus on in a sacrament meeting, you know, talk. And I'd love to get your full analysis of that. But oftentimes when it comes to story, we think, oh, Elder Uchtdorf gave this great story. So I'm going to regurgitate his story, right? But the best stories are your own stories. But I mean, what comes to mind when when we're trying to pick a story, it's easy to sort of default to some of these, someone else's story. Yes, yes. And finding stories is a personal gift. You make it a, a point of pondering and praying. Ask the Lord to help you think of the right experiences. Yeah. I mean, my mind is wired. I am a storyteller. My mom was a writer. I inherited her genes. Everything reminds me of a story. And the problem is I've told the same stories so many times. You know, my kids run screaming from the room. But you ask the Lord, once you've determined your objective, Heavenly Father, what can I do to illustrate this? And, you know, listen and see what comes up. Often, and a related problem is we look for dramatic experiences to, mm, to illustrate right. our talks. We want to talk about the parting of the Red Sea. You know, when I heard the voice of the Lord speak to me, you know, and instead, we need to look for simple everyday experiences that illustrate what we're talking about. They're not big deals. They're part of every week if we look for them. A third way to find stories is keep a journal. Yeah. Yet when I'm giving a talk, often I'll open my journal, which I keep in a word file, and I'll do a keyword search, you know, courage or faith or prayer or whatever. When we read the scriptures, Nephi says, liken them unto yourself. And, you know, when you invest yourself in the stories, you think, when have I had this experience? When have yeah. I been a good Samaritan? And then when we read other good books, things will jump out at us. I just finished a three-volume biography of Winston Churchill, and I've got pages and pages of notes. And again, Winston Churchill can tell his anecdotes better than I can, but those come to mind. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And there's various times. I mean, obviously, personal stories are great. Other, you can reference other people's stories. I mean, that's not like breaking any major rule. And then also <laughs> scripture stories, right? There's phenomenal scripture stories that are always good to reference. And sometimes, I guess... The, and maybe, I mean, feel free to disagree with me here, Richard, but it's like sometimes I worry people default to the scripture stories thinking, well, you know, I got to share this scripture and that means I'm on track if I'm using scripture stories, which are good. But without bringing like that personal experience into it, you know, that personal experience can just be make it that much more authentic and powerful in reaching the audience. Exactly. The problem with a lot of scripture stories is people have heard them before. And so when mm-hmm. you start to regurgitate mm-hmm. them, it's easy for people to tune out. Yeah. When you say, I was on the road to Jericho, and it actually wasn't going to Jericho, but 
here's what happened to yeah. me. Let me tell you about my road to Jericho. You know, like that's it's, interesting. It's new and they're listening. And then you repeat the message. And again, repetition builds retention. And then you reference this, this scripture and then you bear testimony. And you've talked about the principle three times yeah. with your own experience, with the scriptural experience and with, and with your testimony. And by the end of that, people have an idea of what you've talked about. Yeah. Yeah. The last miracle. Yeah. It's awesome. I'll just put a plug in here. We'll put it in the show notes. I did an interview with an individual named Matthew Dix who talks about some strategies to retain and capture stories from your life, even day to day, modern life. And it's a phenomenal interview. So we'll put that in the show notes. If if people are really struggling, think "Ah, that I just, my life is so boring. Nothing ever happens. You know, we're talking about, I don't think that's true. So, anyways, should we move on to uh, the third principle? Principle three is emphasize application. You ask yourself as you're preparing your talk, what can people do because I've spoken today? Emphasizing how people can apply the principles I talk about helps them better live the gospel every day. That's why we have speakers in sacrament meeting. We can't trample on their agency. We can't say you ought to do A, B, and C because that's the way I've done it. It's their job to figure out specifically how they'll follow up. But emphasizing application means action. Application is defined as the act of putting something into operation. I love the scripture in John that says, if ye know these things, happier ye if you, if you do them. You know, a lot of speakers ask rhetorical questions. I heard a talk our stake patriarch gave some years ago. He's a wonderful guy. And he said, so I'm called to be a stake patriarch. I wasn't sure I could do it. And I asked myself, what do I need to do? What do I have to give up in order to have constant access to the Lord's Spirit? And he talked about that. Uh, one of the things he said, partly in jest, is I got to stop watching Fox News. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody laughed. And, you know, he, he's talking about that. And I always remember that because I think, what do I need to give up in order mm-hmm. to have fuller access to the Spirit of God? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's funny and, and powerful for sure. What else about, because the application part's tricky because I don't know, sometimes what I hear, sometimes there's this this push for application, a little bit of like, you know, this, and so here's three things that you need to focus on in your life. You need to up your temple attendance. You need to do this and this is sort of like, okay, yeah, sure. I mean, we all sort of need to, we all maybe should go to the temple more or whatnot, but sometimes it feels too prescriptive, right? So it's kind of tricky with application. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You pound the people, typically when you preach, you know, unless you're Dallin Oaks or Jeffrey R. Holland, you don't have a lot of credibility. Your credibility is what you've done. And so when you say, here's what happened to me, and here's what I learned from it, what we're doing is we're sharing our influence. You know, it's DNC 121 by persuasion and meekness and long suffering. And people say, well, it worked for Brother Nash. Maybe it will work for me. Yeah. And I don't have to say, Kurt, you know, you got to wear a tie when you do these interviews. <laughs> you know, I'm saying, here's what I did. And right. I was richly blessed because I did it. Right. For the record, Richard isn't wearing a tie either. So <laughs> just so everybody knows. <laughs> Love it. Any, any of the other principles as far as uh, emphasizing application that we should consider? A lot of times, I mean, kind of the default sacrament meeting is, you know, speak to this conference talk. And because we just repeat what we've heard before and we kind of put it in our own words, we forget that the leaders of the church can speak the way they do because of the callings they have. 
nobody listens to us and says, well, you know, because Richard Nash is a primary teacher, I ought to listen to what he says. I've got to convince people. And so it's not enough to just pronounce. And largely the brethren don't do that. They encourage. But or even invite, it, right? That's a oh, strong and, President Nelson thing is he invites. And invite is wonderful. And they are so effective. But they speak with power because of the callings they have. And we have to be more persuasive, typically. Yeah, yeah. So you, you brought it up a little bit before is just the the nervousness that one can feel. I mean, again, this is a, a beautiful part of our tradition, but it does make it easy for some people. There's some people that love to speak, you know, in, in front of groups and others... <laughs> They'd rather do anything else, you know. And people who love to speak, my advice is run. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. You know, how can you be less nervous when you speak? Well, nervousness is part of giving a talk. If you're not nervous, you're not paying attention. Um, In a way, nervousness makes us humble and we rely on the spirit more. I think that's one blessing of not having a paid clergy is because we do that on Sunday we get a chance to to get closer to the Lord by leaning on him and figuring out how to do this very difficult thing. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, you know, had his funny quip about, you know, the, the two things people are most afraid of are death and public speaking, and public speaking is ranked first. And so if you go to a funeral, you're better off in the casket than you are at the podium. Yeah. You know, and so all of us are afraid, but... There are simple things you can do. Prepare early. Determine your message. When you're on the Lord's errand and you feel it, you're more more prone to be, what, what? Not enthusiastic, but you're ready to share what, what you're to share. Yeah. Because the Lord has nudged you to share it. Yeah. I tried deep breathing on the stand. When you start your talk well, you you don't stand up and say, man, I got a call from the bishopric on Thursday night to give this talk, and I wish I hadn't answered the phone, you know, blah, blah, blah. I've seen a study done by the University of Pittsburgh that says, quote, speech anxiety is usually worst right before a speech and at the beginning of the speech. Most people find that once they get through the introduction, their anxiety begins to decrease and confidence increases. So the longer your introduction, the more you'll be nervous. If you just stand up and say, here's what I'm here to talk about, then you're automatically into your talk. People are paying attention. You you get that visual feedback. They're paying attention to you. And as you segue into the meat of your talk and you start to, start to tell stories, uh, you're, you're less giving a talk than you are conversing, not with 300 people or with 30 people, but with 30 or 300 individuals. And you look at them and you connect with them and magic happens. And sometimes that magic is the gift of the spirit. Love it. Yeah, I love that uh, that perspective about introductions. Just get the sooner you get past it, the sooner you get past the nervousness. And this is interesting. I don't know. Sometimes we we feel like, you know, we've had or we've heard so many talks, we almost feel like we need like a runway, right? We need an introduction. We need to stand there and say, Boy, I'm nervous today, or boy. Uh, just uh, thank you for ha- being here. So good to see many of you. Uh, all right, on to my talk, right? But even, you know, if you look at General Conference, very few of them give any type of introduction or runway. They're they're right into it. And a powerful way I've learned of starting a talk is just get right into the story. I mean, imagine 
walking up to the lectern and just saying it was 3 a.m. and I couldn't sleep. And, and people are just like, wait a minute, what? Where, where, here we go. All right, we're off and running, right? And, and people are with you automatically. Yeah. Again, yeah. In, in the most recent general conference, 27 of the 35 talks began in the first sentence with a story or a statement of, of the speaker's yeah. objective. Yeah, it's powerful. It really is. Oh, and that, with speaking of nervousness, you know, I, I try and reframe it a little bit. I remember when I served in the state presidency, obviously there's various, I had lots of opportunities to speak. And I remember before a state conference, you know, usually I'd speak at least once during the state conference and I'd tell my wife, I'd say, I don't feel nervous enough. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, I, I wish that I, I felt more nervous because it always goes better when I'm a little nervous, right? I think it was, was it Bill Russell whose team knew that he was going to have a good game if they heard him, you know, throwing up in the bathroom before the game. And so they even got to a point where they would encourage him to go throw up because then he would get on the court and he'd just have record numbers, you know, on, on the court. There's something about nervousness. Like a, it's almost for me personally, it's almost like the surrender of like, I am so nervous. I don't have any choice but to just give this to God. And here we go. I'm going to start talking, like put the words in my mouth, you know. Bingo. Bingo. And again, that's why we're there. We're not there to share what we want to share. We're there to, to share what the Lord wants us to talk about. Yeah. And beautiful. the humility of giving a talk is good medicine for us. Yeah. You know, uh, you talk about preparation as far as helping with nervousness. One thing that, uh, man, I feel like is not utilized enough, and even it's hard to get myself to do it, but they never underestimate the power of just practicing, doing a run through at home, even if you're in a, a room by yourself, because you will quickly notice like, oh, I've actually got 35 minutes worth of content and I only have 15. Maybe I should look at something I can cut and you cut with confidence because it's one thing to be nervous. It's a whole nother thing to be, to be embarrassed when you've gone yes. 10 minutes over. You know? Yes, it, exactly. Practice is wonderful. And again, close the door, give your talk, walk yeah. through it. If you are prepared, you shall not fear. I would edit that to say you shall not fear much right. because you will fear, <laughs> yeah, but not as much. Yeah. And then especially with this encouragement to have you know examples and stories, you will be shocked. You think in your mind, oh, that's a three-minute story. And then you say it and it's like, oh, actually, that was eight minutes. You know, <laughs> And so I either need to cut that down or readjust or, or know that, okay, I, I can go with that, but it's going to be half my talk or whatever. Yes, yes. Yeah. My, my wife and I actually have a deal. And when I'm, when I'm speaking, she scratches her nose when I have three minutes left or five minutes left. <laughs> Oh, and nice. so I, I look at her and think, uh, maybe she's got a cold because this yeah. story is going so well, I'm going to add more details. And yeah. actually, I know it's time to wrap it up. <laughs> yep, really good. Anything else about nervousness that we, that we didn't hit on? Make eye contact. When you smile and you look at individual members of the congregation, often you'll see your friends. Yeah. And I remember giving a talk right after my mom had died. It, it, it was in state conference. And I stood up and looked at all the people in state conference. And, you, you know, I, I didn't know all of them, but I knew a lot of them. And what I remember thinking is I looked out. I don't speak from a written script. I only speak from notes. And so, you know, I always look out over, over the congregation. And what I thought was, I wonder if this is what mom saw, a view like this, when she stepped through the veil, if she was greeted by the legions of mm. family and friends on the yeah. other side. And it was a sweet, 
wonderful experience. Yeah. Although I don't recommend speaking in a state conference. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sometimes we can't, we can't escape it. So Uh, awesome. What about when humor is appropriate? I mean, the the typical cliche is like, oh, you got to stand up there and say something funny. And and maybe that's a way that puts people at ease when they hear sort of the audience, you know, laugh, but it also can really disrupt you when they don't laugh. (laughs) And they think, oh boy, I've lost the audience already. You know, and often we're tempted to use humor right at the start. It kind of is a coping mechanism. And I want to tell a joke mainly so I will feel comfortable. And all it does is elongate your nervousness. And I think jokes are not appropriate. You know, it's the typical a bishop, a rabbi, and a Catholic priest walk into a bar, you know, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. And half the time people will, will have heard it already. And the other half of the time, it takes you away from your topic. Yeah. And and so you're wasting your time while you're up there. On the other hand, when you tell stories, when you have an anecdote, people will laugh at that. I, I mean, we try to talk the way the, the leaders of the church talk, and many of their stories are funny. Yeah. Um, I think of Glenn L. Pace, who was called to be in the presiding bishopric so, some years ago, and and he stood up. I Gosh, I forget what, what year it was. And he stood up and he said, Last Sunday, I was second counselor in my ward's bishopric, and today I'm second counselor in the presiding bishopric. And when President Hinckley extended the call to ask me to speak, my first question wasn't, what should I say? It was, President, how do I get in? <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, people are relating to him. He's one of us. You know, how yeah. many second counselors are there? And he, he shared an anecdote. Yeah. You know, anecdotes, if they're funny, you know, I'm biased. I, I either I am or I try to be funny. And I think humor is a gift the Lord, Lord gave to us. I remember the first funeral I conducted when I was a bishop. I was thinking, I've got to be deadly serious because someone has died here. And he was an older guy in the ward. His death actually was a blessing. And once I stood up, I saw people need the release and the relief of humor. We, and, and again, we, do, we don't tell jokes, we tell stories. Mm-hmm. And if the stories are funny, people connect. And magic happens in that they want to listen more. I mean, I, sp- I spoke at the funeral of a dear friend, and I told how he used to answer the phone. I'd call him. In fact, it was during the pandemic, and I'd call, and he'd always answer the phone. And he'd say, humility department, Terry speaking. <laughs> and, nice. you know, I, I mentioned that at the start of my funeral talk and, you know, it it warms up my talk and it tells the audience this is going to be a conversation. Yeah. And it, it can be so endearing. I mean, again, going back to Elder Uchtdorf, he's, he's a master of this. It's rarely he's not oh. just standing up to be funny, but it's he's weaving it into his topic in a way that is so endearing to him. And that's why, you know, he still he himself jokes that. You know, he gives airplane anecdotes, but that's just, I mean, that was most of his life. So oh, what do you expect? You know? Yeah. And, and again, you know, we, we've talked about leadership and sharing vision and culture. And I remember when I was called to be bishop my first Sunday, and I had three weeks between when I was called and when I was sustained as, as bishop. And during, the, during that time, I think I went to the temple about a hundred times. <laughs> and after one of the visits, I left my recommend in my shirt pocket and destroyed it. You know, paper recommend it was destroyed. So I went down 
you know, I met with our outgoing bishop and then went down and, and met with the stake to get a new temple recommend. And while I was there, there's a member of our ward there and she's waiting to get her recommend. And she said, you know, we're probably smart to be here because we're getting a new bishop on Sunday and you never know what kind of hardliner we're going to get. <laughs> <laughs> and I told that story. I think it was the, the first the day I was sustained. And, you know, even though I have a serious face, people <laughs> listened to that and it, it told them a little bit about what kind of person I was yeah, and what to expect of, you know, my tone and, and my personality. Yeah. I think it helped set the culture that I wanted to instill. Yeah. Another uh, sort of trap I, I see with humor, especially in a context where uh, somebody is, has been assigned a conference talk or even in maybe an Elders Quorum Relief Society setting, you know, they default to the the humor that was in in the talk, right? And it was maybe good for Elder Holland to use in the talk. And you think, well, it worked for him. Let's give it a try here. But, you know, generally everybody's heard the the funny anecdote or whatnot. It sort of really lands flat when you try and yeah. regurgitate the humor yeah. that somebody yeah. else used, right? So so if, if you've got that gift, if your stories are funny, be humorous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Lean into it for sure. So let me let me circle back to this dynamic of like what any advice that you'd give and when it comes to just like the bishoprics who either give a topic, you know, that we want you to speak on such and such topic or it is a conference talk. Uh, any advice you'd give on on preparing for that kind of talk? <laughs> We've talked about a lot of those things before. And, you, you know, President McKay's advice to use examples always comes to mind. When I was a bishop, when I was brand new, I felt part of my errand from the Lord was to improve our meetings. And so I, you know, we had a letter we sent to all the people we asked to, to speak in church. And we said, you know, we shared actually President McKay's three points of advice. And we emphasized asking them to share their stories. And then we assigned topics that were pointed toward sharing their own experiences. One topic, I, how I know the Lord loves me, how the example of others has helped me follow the Lord's example. We didn't assign conference talks. We didn't assign, you know, speak on the love of God. Influences that helped me gain and strengthen my testimony. I remember we asked a couple of members of the ward, take two weeks and don't read the scriptures. And then take two weeks and read the scriptures every day and in sacrament meeting in a month, talk about the difference in your life. And now they're standing up and they're talking about their, their experience. Here's what happened to me. And again, in a great big ward where, you know, the we probably weren't as warm and as, as engaging as, you know, we wanted to be. When people stand up and talk, there's connection. And you get done with a talk like that and you walk up to Brother Jones and say, I felt the same thing. Or thanks for telling that story because I've had a, a similar experience. So we tried to assign topics that were interactive. Mm. Yeah, that's that's awesome advice. I'm just thinking of like those impromptu talks at times. I mean, this is a great model to to use, right? I mean, whether you have time to sketch down a few notes or you're talking, you know, you can still use this model and and uh, to to formulate a, a a talk, even you know, five ten minute talk. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. What tell me, what about the dynamic of like uh, Sunday school where obviously we've been encouraged it's supposed to be more of sort of a 
a dialogue or a discussion among the group and whatnot, but you still want to have like somewhat of an objective, right? But you can't just preach at them for the whole time. So any advice you'd give in that, that type of setting? Boy, often in Sunday school, our objective is cover the material. And our, you know, people will stand up and say, our lesson is on Luke 5 and 6. And so again, what do you want them to take away from that? Nobody goes home and says, well, what was your lesson on today, Dad? Well, it was on Luke 5 and 6. No, you search Luke 5 and 6 and you find an objective. You're mindful of the needs of the people because you've prayed about them. And you want to know, Father in heaven, help lead me to an objective that will help people in their lives this week. So in John 5 and 6, I'm going to search for an objective that will help people live their lives. So many of our manuals say, ask people to share their experiences. And often we'll ask, what do you think? Or, you know, what do you think Luke meant when he you know, did this. And often, again, it's the gospel scholars. When you ask experience-based questions, have you ever been in a position, and again, it goes back to, you know, the Kirtland Temple example. Have you ever been in, in a position where you had a calling to do something you didn't know how to do? How did you cope? And everybody has had experiences like that. When you ask an experience-based question, people are going to tell stories. And when they tell stories, Number one, you'll have a better discussion. And number two, people will take away from the lesson ideas that will help them live their lives. You won't be talking about the text. You'll be talking about the members of the class. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. And because, I mean, these principles can still hold true that you still need an objective. It's not just a block of scriptures that we're supposed to talk about, cover, right? And uh, even this past uh, Sunday, we had Sunday school and at the end of the class, the, the teacher who was going to teach next time, you know, right before everybody left the room, she just said, hey, just so you know, in two weeks, I'm going to, you know, we're covering this chapter and this chapter of scripture or whatnot, especially this story or what in a come follow me day and age, where by the time you walk into Sunday school, you've had two weeks worth of come follow me, you know, curriculum, and you don't know where the teacher's going to go. And so, to help the class have an objective, even a target of scripture they're going to focus on, they're going to be better prepared and ready to participate because you've given them an, an objective, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Powerful. Yeah. Do we cover it all, Richard? What, what do we miss? What principle do we make, need to make sure we cover? There's one chapter in my book, and I'll save this till the end because it may be a little bit controversial, and people have, have wondered should I write out my talk in advance? Mm. And, 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 and read it verbatim, right? Yes. And a lot of people want to do that. Because we again, do that in, in the general conference, right? <laughs> uh, the, the rule is there's one time to write your talk out in advance, and that is when you're speaking in general conference. Exactly. The, the rest of the time, my advice is avoid it. Make notes and speak from your notes. You know, you want to have some things written down if there are quotes from leaders of the church or scriptures you, you want to quote. But when your talk is based on an objective and, and on stories, then you just tell the stories. And when you tell the stories, when you're looking out at them, rather than looking down at your script, there is an emotional connection that makes it easier to listen to. When your head is down and you're just reading, 
you know, unless we are Tom Brokaw, we're going to be harder to listen to compared to if we're conversational. The Lord has said a number of times, it'll be given you in the very moment what you shall say. If you haven't written out verbatim what you're going to say, you know, you're likely to be less nervous because your talk will be perfect. But it's hard for the Lord to interrupt and say, what I want you to say at this moment while you're feeling this thought is this. And if it's all written out in advance, how does the Lord interrupt us? Ulysses Suarez, God's promise to the humble is that he will lead them by the hand. My talks are not as, as articulate as if I could write them out in advance, but I'm more vulnerable. And I think somehow you, you'll have to test this. Our listeners will have to test this. In my stuttering, there's a little humility and maybe there's a little relevance too. And I hope people will see I'm a real person. You know, I'm not reading a script from General Conference. So make an outline, be prepared, but try to avoid reading your talk ver verbatim. In the book, there, there are a number of leaders of the church, from President Hinckley to Bruce McConkie to Gene R. Cook, who wrote a great book called Teaching by the Spirit. And all of them advise us to not read a talk verbatim when we stand up and speak. Yeah, I think it's sage advice, really good. And, and there's some surrender in it, right? There's some humility, like you said, that you got to just give it to the Lord and say, here we go. You know, like these are just your words and I want to I want to be helpful in that. So Kurt, Kurt, there's a reason you're the host here. There is <laughs> surrender in it. Yeah. And you're there on the Lord's bidding. Yeah, for sure. So let him speak through you. Awesome. Well, and if you want to learn more about your work or obviously your book is available online and you know, as far as church books are, are sold, right? Anywhere else you'd send them if you want to learn more about uh, I, speaking? I, I've got a website. It's bettertalkslds.com. And I've got some handouts there where, and the handouts range from how do I conquer nervousness to how do I begin a talk to a one-page summary of President McKay's advice to how to find stories when you speak. So Click on the website, you know, you, you can get the handouts. Actually, you don't need to read the book, but if you learn the principles, you'll give a better talk. Love it. Well, I'm so glad that, that you wrote this, Richard, and it's going to help uh, so many people, and uh, especially those who are maybe a little bit more nervous and don't, don't like to speak. Maybe they can find a little bit of enjoyment as they do so. So, I hope uh, so. Last question I have for you, Richard, is you reflect on your time as a leader in various capacities that you've been asked to lead. How has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Boy, I've learned how to see the Spirit. And often the Spirit of the Lord is more clear in retrospect. And typically we, we have a problem, we pray, we wonder what to do, we have to exercise faith. And it's kind of like the old joke, you know, once we solve the problem, we say, Never mind, I've solved this on my own. I don't need your help. But when we look back, we see, oh, that's where my prayer was answered. And as I've been led by the Spirit in a number of callings, as a primary teacher, as a priest quorum advisor, I can tell when I've been led by the Spirit. And sometimes it's in the moment, and often it's in retrospect. My sense is the Spirit of the Lord is more clear in retrospect.
That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. Remember, we'd love to have you at our next in-person retreat. Go check out the different options and locations where we're having these at leadingsaints.org slash gathering. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.